Good evening, and thank you for joining us for this evening's lecture given by the Professor of Poetry here at the University of Oxford, Alice Oswald. My name is Philip Bullock, and I'm Director of TORCH, the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities. We're delighted to host this evening's event as part of our live events series, itself part of the Humanities Cultural Programme, one of the founding stones for the future Stephen A. Schwartzman Centre for the Humanities. Alice has kindly agreed to take questions from the audience, so if you do have any, please pop them in the YouTube chat during the lecture and we'll do our very best to answer as many as we can at the end of the discussion. Torch is delighted to be collaborating with the English faculty in hosting this evening's lecture, so it's my great pleasure and great honour to welcome Professor Ros Ballister to tell us more. Ros Ballister is Professor of 18th Century Studies, Tutorial Fellow at Mansfield College and the Chair of the English Faculty Board. She has published widely on the novel and on women's writing in the 18th century, and is currently writing a book about the role of the theatre in the invention of the novel. Roz, thank you so much for chairing Alice's lecture. So without further ado, I'd like to hand over to you now. Thank you. Thank you, Philip, for the introduction and to Torch for supporting our English faculty live event this evening. Uh, welcome again to all our viewers watching at home. The Professor of Poetry gives a public lecture each term the post has been in place at Oxford since the lectures were first conceived in 1708, in order that, quote, the reading of the ancient poets should give keenness and polish to the minds of young men, as well as to the advancement of more serious literature, both sacred and human. Much has changed since that conception. We've questioned what counts as serious literature and who decides that. We now make keen the minds of students, regardless of their sex or gender. We read and discuss the most modern alongside the ancient poets. In some ways, though, the legacy remains and is brought to life most splendidly in the figure of our current and 46th Professor of Poetry, Alice Oswald. She's a keen classicist in conversation with the voices of the ancient past, perhaps most memorably with Homer's Iliad in her memorial of 2011 and with his Odyssey in her recent collection, Nobody, 2019. Her poetry makes the mythic human and the human mythic. Poetry, she commented in her election statement, is an ancient memory system. It asks to be heard out loud or at least read in the manner of a musical score. Professor Oswald knows how to use her voice to speak for poetry and from poetry. I can't think then of a better poet to give the first ever online lecture by a professor of poetry at Oxford. For too many across the world, this is a time of grief and loss. And Professor Oswald's lecture will speak to that experience today too. Her topic is the uncanny connection of grief with water. Water is the element that has consistently flowed through her imagination. She is in her element with water, her element is water. And I'm honored to invite her to deliver her lecture for this term. Its title is An Interview with Water. And I'm pleased to hand over to Professor Alice Oswald for her lecture. Hello, can you see me? We can. You can. Okay, hello, and I'm grateful as well to you, Ros, and to Torch for providing this platform to the English faculty. Uh, it does seem rather ironic that I should be speaking to people through a computer screen when live performance has always been my personal manifesto. It is still my manifesto, and it's what I speak about again today, in spite of being on YouTube. I don't want to give up 
on the physical performance of poetry, even if it means moving it outdoors into the streets while we're all under lockdown. Anyway, as a marker of where we are today, and because it fits the themes of my lecture, I'd like to start just by reading a poem by Jericho Brown called Riddle. And uh, this poem is about the murder of Emmett Till in 1955 in Mississippi. We do not recognize the body of Emmett Till. We do not know the boy's name, nor the sound of his mother's wailing. We have never heard a mother wailing. We do not know the history of this nation in ourselves. We do not know the history of ourselves on this planet because we do not have to know what we believe we own. We believe we own your bodies, but have no use for your tears. We destroy the body that refuses use. We use maps we did not draw. We see a sea so cross it. We see a moon so land there. We love land so long as we can take it. Shh, we can't take that sound. What is a mother wailing? We do not recognize music until we can sell it. We sell what cannot be bought. We buy silence. Let us help you. How much does it cost to hold your breath underwater? Wait, wait, what are we? What? What on earth are we? What? It is a wonderful gift to be able to swim in rivers, especially on bright, clear days like these. You step into an inverted version of the world. The water fits around you like a velvet suit and you float along seemingly decapitated by reflections. Of all the gifts offered to us by water, I'm going to speak today about its gift of reflection, the liquid, impermanent, unstable gift of similarity. Similarity, by the way, is not the same as sameness. If you want to hear sameness, you can ring certain public institutions and you will be told your call is important to us. You are held in a queue and will be answered shortly. Your call is important to us. You are held in a queue and will be answered shortly. Your call is important to us. You are held in a queue and will be answered shortly. Your call is important to us. You are held in a queue and will be answered shortly. The recorded message is a new kind of poetry, a machine spoken poetry, available on everyone's phone at any time of day. And it communicates a machine's belief in sameness or stuckness, which is a terrible thing to carry in your pocket. As an antidote to that message, if you want to witness similarity, you should look at water, whose reflections are always being buried by currents in the air. I keep a bucket of rainwater under my window and it delights me that green leaves reflected in a black bucket are not quite green. I don't know what colour they are. At certain moments early in the day they might be called pre-green but then the clouds change or the wind moves a surface mark and all at once they seem bright dark then blind silvery then foggy emerald. 
Samuel Johnson used this idea of agitated reflection to evoke the difference between spoken and written language. In the preface to his dictionary, he wrote about the impossibility of defining words in their passing, unrecorded forms. While our language is yet living, he said, and variable at a caprice of everyone that speaks it, these words are hourly shifting their relations and can no more be ascertained in a dictionary than a grove in the agitation of a storm can be accurately delineated from its picture in the water. I love to imagine that other kind of dictionary. A liquid, shifting, not yet written down dictionary is exactly what we should bring to Homer's language to remind ourselves that what looks like sameness on the page will transform into similarity in performance. The pink-fingered dawn, the dark-proud ship, the winged word, to repeat those phrases in print is to drive the reader mad with sameness. To repeat them in performance with altered posture and varying levels of exhaustion or light or voice is to offer the gift of similarity. Agitated similarity is Homer's gift, and it is his element. It behaves like water. It throws everything into trembling reflection. Under its sway, the journey of Odysseus looks like, but is not the same as, the journey of Telemachus. The rage of Agamemnon looks like, but is not the same as, the rage of Achilles. Odysseus wakes just as Penelope sleeps, and then sleeps just as she wakes, and his marriage copies itself backwards in the marriage of Agamemnon, and then forwards again in the marriages of Alcinous, Aeolus, and Zeus. Penelope mourns like a nightingale, and a nightingale mourns like a human. Homer's adjectives, which keep reappearing in new colors, are rippled by the same agitation. The earth is called life-giving, just as a man's blood drains into it. Achilles is swift-footed while he sits idle. And there is agitated or animated similarity between Priam and the father of Achilles, and also between Hecuba and the mother of Odysseus, and between Calypso and Penelope, and between Athene and all swallows. But at heart, of all this resemblance, as it were, the pleat in the poem's cloth, there is the simile itself. The extended simile is Homer's particular doubled over style of thinking. There are about 215 extended similes in the Iliad, almost another hallucinated poem floating above the main one. In the Odyssey, there are only half a dozen and I'd like to read you the eeriest of these. So the great singer sang, but Odysseus liquefied, the tears ran out under his eyelids onto his cheek. As when a woman crumples over and mourns her husband, he has fallen in full view of his city and his family. He was trying to delay the stroke of grief for his children. She sees him dying and gasping, 
drapes herself on his body, screaming a shrill sound, and the men behind are hitting her head and shoulders with their spears, and they lead her away to slavery, to suffer hard work and sadness, and her face is sucked in with pitiful grief. So Odysseus was pouring out pitiful tears from his eyelids. I'll read it again because it's always hard to take in poetry. So the great singer sang, but Odysseus liquefied, the tears ran out under his eyelids onto his cheek. As when a woman crumples over and mourns her husband, he has fallen in full view of his city and his family. He was trying to delay the stroke of grief for his children. She sees him dying and gasping drapes herself on his body, screaming a shrill sound, and the men behind are hitting her head and shoulders with their spears, and they lead her away to slavery to suffer hard work and sadness, and her face is sucked in with pitiful grief, so Odysseus was pouring out pitiful tears from his eyelids. Oral poems keep moving, and so should oral critics. But there are two good reasons for pausing to think about this passage. First of all, it is a simile about liquefaction, which seems to emerge from the actuality of water. So you could say that it is a simile about similarity. Secondly, and more importantly, this is a passage about tears. Tears as the messengers of similarity. The way that widow interrupts the narrative with her weeping, not as a ghost or a sign or a memory, but as a stranger in the language with her own vivid existence. The way her scream goes on damaging the mind. That tells me something about grief itself and how poetry might rise to meet it. So the great singer sang, but Odysseus liquefied. The tears ran out under his eyelids onto his cheek as when a woman crumples over and mourns her husband. He has fallen in full view of his city and his family. He was trying to delay the stroke of grief for his children. She sees him dying and gasping, drapes herself on his body, screaming a sharp sound, and the men behind are hitting her head and shoulders with their spears, and they lead her away to slavery to suffer hard work and sadness, and her face is sucked thin with pitiful grief. So Odysseus was pouring out pitiful tears from his eyelids. Just to give you some context, this is Odyssey book eight. Odysseus on his way home from Troy has lost his ship, his companions, his raft, and has swum inland to Phaeacia where he is listening to a poetry recital. He is in disguise. And the poet, a blind man called Demodocus, is telling a story about Odysseus in battle. And he, as you can hear, is weeping. And it is the second time this has happened. In the same book, only 500 lines earlier, the same poet, Demodocus, sang a different song about Odysseus. And Odysseus, in disguise, started weeping. And the whole thing happened with the same opening line. So the great poet sang, but Odysseus. So the great poet sang, 
but Odysseus, taking his bluish gown in his big hands, threw it over his head and hid his face, ashamed to let the Phaeacians see his tears. This earlier version has no simile, but the spirit of similarity is radiantly present, especially when you imagine the piece in performance. According to Eustathius of Thessalonica, when rhapsodes performed the Odyssey, they would always wear blue, and when reciting the Iliad, they wore red. Some of the energy of this passage must derive from the peripheral effects of its performance, watching a rhapsode bend under a blue gown to describe Odysseus under a blue gown, listening to Demodocus in a blue gown, not far from the fictional sea in its blue gown, not far from the actual sea. It's as if a whole line of oral poets were suddenly reflected, forming together in that watery color. Go back to the bucket of water to wave a blue gown above it and ask what color? What is that color which Homer calls porphyrion? It is not blue exactly. It gets translated as purple, but purple is a settled color, whereas Homer's word is agitated. It derives from the sea verb porphyrio, which means to roll without breaking. So it is already a fluid word, a heaped up word, a word with underswell, not a pigment, but an emanation from the nature of water. To get a true sense of porphyrion, you need to see the sea in it. And for Homer, the sea is unhuman, full of strange creatures, mist-colored, unplowable, and this is my favorite word, it is aperiton, meaning unfenced. If you want to imagine the color of Odysseus's gown, you will have to swim out into the unfenced place, the place not of definitions, but of affinitions. Yes, I'm afraid you will have to find your way to the P volume of Johnson's unwritten dictionary. There you will discover a dark light word, an adjective for edgelessness, a C word used also of death, smoke, cloth, mist, blood. Between bluish purple and cobalt mauve. It appears mid-ocean when the wind perhaps makes a network of back-blowing glitters but the underswell moves sideways as when a big sea swells with noiseless waves. It is used of the heart, meaning his heart was a heaving, not quite broken wave. It indicates a surface, but suggests a depth, a mutation of blackness or noiseless sheen, a sea creature, a quality of caves, any inlet or iodine or shaded stone, a type of algae, or rockfish, anything excessive or out of focus or subliminal. For example, a swimmer seen from underneath, a rotting smell, a list of low sounds, an evening shadow or sea god, a whole catalogue of simmering grudges, storms, waves and solitudes, all deep water, including everyone who has drowned in it. To be purpled is to lose one's way or name, to be nothing, to grieve without surfacing, to suffer the effects of sea light, to be either sleepless or wakeless and cut off by dreams. Find yourself in the silence underneath an overhanging wave. That 
or thereabouts is the colour of a bluish violet ultramarine gown. So the great poet sang, but Odysseus, taking his bluish gown in his big hands, drew it over his head and hid his face, ashamed to let the Phaeacians see his tears. The gown goes over the head like a wave. The human sits under its sea colour with salt water pouring from his eyes. It is one of those places where the form of the poem hurries us forward. The form of the language pulls us back. Orphurion is a word with water inside it, like a bucket put down in the middle of a line. Already, if you look hard at the word, you can see the widow's simile underneath it. But Homer is not yet ready to make that gift. With magnificent theatricality, he draws a blue gown across the mind. And we, like the Phaeacians, are left looking at it, waiting. Homer is the foremost poet of the visible. Homer delights in surfaces, but the surface of water is complicated by transparency. And its transparency is complicated by refraction. Water is never the same as itself. Rivers can only exist as similarities. Lakes reflect more than their own volume. And what's more, when you look at water, it allows you to exist twice, but more darkly. When you look at it again, it evaporates, as if moving in and out of existence simply required a bit of sunlight. Then it reappears as frost, perfectly symmetrical, as if discovering pre-drawn diagrams in thin air. Then it reappears as tears, so that any attempt to describe the surface of water tells you to hide your face and inspect your inmost thoughts. All these waverings are part of the word porphyrion. The physics or nature of water is metaphysical, meaning that its surface expresses more than itself. So I need to turn left here. To understand the tears of Odysseus, I need to make a detour into the very different world of John Donne, a so-called metaphysical poet. Samuel Johnson invented the idea of metaphysical poetry, and he complained that the men who wrote it were too impassive and leisurely and cannot be said to have imitated anything. Johnson, who spent eight years compiling his dictionary of the English language and forgot to include the word sea, might be said to have forgotten the sea again when he made that remark. Here is a poem by Dunn called A Valediction of Weeping which might be roughly described as an imitation of the sea. It is a poem about salt water, which is also a love poem, a passionate poem, which is also densely involved in working out what water is. A Valediction of Weeping. Let me pour forth my tears before thy face whilst I stay here. For thy face coins them and thy stamp they bear. And by this mintage, they are something worth 
for thus they be pregnant of thee. Fruits of much grief they are, emblems of more. When a tear falls, that thou falls which it bore. So thou and I are nothing then, when on a diver's shore. On a round ball, a workman that hath copies by, and lay in Europe, Africa, and an ATA, and quickly make that which was nothing all. So doth each tear which thee doth wear, a globe, yea, world by that impression grow, till thy tears mixed with mine do overflow this world by waters sent from thee, my heaven dissolved so. O more than moon, draw not up seas to drown me in thy sphere. Weep me not dead in thine arms, but forbear to teach the sea what it may do too soon. Let not the wind in sample find to do me more harm than it purposeth. Since thou and I sigh one another's breath, where sighs most is cruelest and hastes the other's death. And I'm going to read it again, I think, without the script up, because it's always nice to, to hear a poem. Alice, sorry, it's Roz here. Could I just interrupt very briefly and ask yes. you, could you just move your camera a little bit so that people can see the bottom of your face? We've had some okay. people who are struggling, if they if they need to lip read a bit, that's better. That's why. Like that. Is that, is it, that's perfect. Sorry, I can't see myself, so I can't <laughs> see whether. Okay, thank you, Roz. Thank you so much. Uh, I apologise about that. Okay, here's the poem again, A Valediction of Weeping. Let, let me pour forth my tears before thy face whilst I stay here, for thy face coins them and thy stamp they bear. And by this mintage they are something worth, for thus they be pregnant of thee. Fruits of much grief they are, emblems of more. When a tear falls, that thou falls which it bore, so thou and I and nothing then when on a diver's shore. On a round ball, a workman that hath copies by can lay an Europe, Africa, and an Asia, and quickly make that which was nothing all. So doth each tear which thee doth wear, a globe, yea, world by that impression grow till thy tears mixed with mine do overflow this world by waters sent from thee, my heaven dissolved so. O more than moon, draw not up seas to drown me in thy sphere. Weep me not dead in thine arms, but forbear to teach the sea what it may do too soon. Let not the wind in sample find to do me more harm than it purposeth. Since thou and I sigh one another's breath, whoe'er sighs most is cruelest and hastes the other's death. Dunn was not an oral poet, but nor was he exactly a print poet. His work would have been circulated in manuscript form and it was normal for friends friends to adjust a word here or there if that seemed fitting. So you could say that during Dunn's lifetime, this poem was held in a fluid or at least viscous state. And in keeping with this, it achieves a slippery balance between two modes of thinking. The syntax sounds 
like a calculation, a discrimination. But the imagery is all watery fencelessness. Till thy tears mixed with mine do overflow this world by waters sent from thee, my heaven dissolved so. The dislocation between tone and form is what makes the poem hard to read. People are sometimes unsure how to match its complexity with its urgency. It is so clearly a premeditated performance of the here and now. Let me pour forth whilst I stay here. Weep me not dead in thine arms. But before criticizing the poem's doubleness, one ought to glance down at the bucket of water. That is what tears are made of. Lament at its most extreme will always have to encounter water and we need someone like Dunn to keep an eye on that absurdity. So doth each tear which thee doth wear, a globe gay world by that impression grow, till thy tears mixed with mine do overflow this world by waters sent from thee, my heaven dissolved so. Inside a tear, as if in a mirror, Dunn sees copies of copies of weepers, a bit like blue gowned poets in Odyssey 8. And these weepers are reflecting each other's tears and provoking more until the sphere or sea of their weeping is dissolving and dissolved. That is what you might call a periton, an unfenced description of water. And its language is close to Dunn's 1597 account of an actual sea voyage in which I and the sun, which should teach me, had forgot east, west, day, night. All things are one. And that one, none can be, since all forms, uniform deformity doth cover. Trust a boat on the high seas, said Conrad a few hundred years later. Trust a boat on the high seas to bring out the irrational that lurks at the bottom of every thought, sentiment, sensation, emotion. For all its cleverness, Dunn's poem brings out that high sea irrationality. It thinks its way to the bottom of thought and reports on the confusion to be found there, where the mind's world, by means of tears, turns into the bodies. I am using water as a way of reading Homer, and I'm using Dunn as a way of reading water. Dunn has carried me into the heart of weeping. I am under the purple wave now, inside the salt water that condenses out of thought and comes weeping from all humans. And here at its invisible starting point, I find water offering two services of similarity. It offers me Homer's vision, which is an extended simile. And it offers me Dunn's, which you could say is an extended metaphor or series of metaphors. I think of metaphor as a kind of nutrition, whereby one idea gets eaten and digested by another. Male and female in Dunn's poem dissolve and transform. Tears become fruits and emblems and nothings and spheres and seeds. Everything transubstantiates into something else, as if Dunn, who was brought up a Catholic but became Anglican in his twenties, had found a way to perform a communion service in secret. All his love poems work obsessively at this puzzle of change substance. Perhaps unlike Homer, what Dunn offers is not the gift of similarity, but the gift of communion. Mark but this flea 
and mark in this how little that would thou denyest me is. It sucked me first, and now sucks thee, and in this flea our two bloods mingled be. But, O oh, self-traitor, I do bring the spider love which transubstantiates all. Simile moves in the other direction. Instead of reducing one thing to another, it proliferates, it reverberates. Wherever, wherever there is simile, it is as if the poem sprouts another whole poem. It is much more like pregnancy than nutrition. About 30 years ago, I sent some poems to the Oxford Professor of Poetry, and the answer came back, not enough metaphor. I remember turning for reassurance to that widow in book eight, noticing the way she refuses to be absorbed into thought. She will not be digested. She shares a likeness with Odysseus, but keeps her difference. She goes on screaming. It seemed to me at the time that her vitality was directly linked to the spaciousness of simile. If she had been a metaphor, her status would have been closer to the woman in Dunn's poem or to the women, for example, in Adrienne Rich's poem, Women, about whom the poet writes this. I have a poem, she says, written in the 60s called Women. It begins, my three sisters are sitting on rocks of black obsidian for the first time in this light I can see who they are. And she goes on to say, I have seen that poem glossed as a poem about Rich's three sisters. On the simplest level, such a reading is factually incorrect since Adrienne Rich has one sister, not three. But more than that, even supposing that Adrienne Rich, the individual had three sisters, the poem lives by metaphor. On one level, this is still her speaking, on one level I can look at another woman who is not my blood kin and call her sister, or on another level all three sisters are aspects of the poet's self. Poetry is full of that kind of fiction, those various levels and aspects by means of which metaphor tries to detect something immaterial. But that is not what Homer is doing. Homer is looking out beyond the self. He is taking the imagination seriously as an external and collaborative force. His mind, his frenes, is not closed in the skull, but moving in and out of the lungs, discovering someone actual in the air. Homer wants to express the clarity and otherness of grief. And for that purpose, he has need of simile. Metaphor transposes a noun, simile realigns a verb. That is why Donne looks deeper and deeper into the tear, whereas Homer moves his vision to and fro, examining the action of weeping. Homer has to step quickly. He has to get from one weeping to another by means of a small crossing word, the Greek word hos. I don't know how to translate that word. It's unfortunate that the English word as, which is the correct way to introduce a verb comparison, is a weak, quiet, old-fashioned word. It sounds dusty, like something you would find among Victorian door handles in a junk shop. The word like 
which is designed for comparing nouns, is altogether more vigorous, but its edges are too sharp. It sticks out of the line like a glinting knife. I need something softer and swifter. Homer's word is a rough breathing followed by omega, the undulating last letter of the alphabet, followed by S, as if the wind had heaped up water and then broken it into sounds. Hos, it is hard to pronounce unless you are the wind. Whenever I read it, I think of waves altering a stretch of water and then altering it again. Hos, hos, two ripples either side of a likeness. It is as if the bluish wave, the curve of a bowed back, had unfolded and revealed its underneath. While it is breaking, before we reach the hiss at the end of Hoes, I'd like to turn left again to show you a series of waves by the artist Sarah Simblett. Sarah teaches anatomy at the Ruskin, and if you visit her room at Christchurch, you will find all kinds of dead objects, twisted pods, severed wings, stuffed owls and a kingfisher, finger bones, open heels, moths, seeds, skulls, stones, and three wasp-like human torsos, one with scoliosis, which help her to understand the structures of things. I suppose they comprise a kind of material dictionary. But if Sarah wants to draw something moving, growing, living, she makes use of water. 20 years ago, Sarah started studying the Thames at Ifley, where it goes over the weir. I listen acutely to water, she told me. I draw its sound as well as its smell. She describes how she developed an ability to see water patterns because the design of the weir kept making the water, sorry, the design of the weir made the water keep returning to one shape. So for example, she made these two sketches by waiting for the water to repeat itself and then marking down another line and then another. Noticing as she went along that the speed of the water could only be caught if she drew quickly. That's another one of them. My drawings are all made with fine liner pen, black or gray, she says. The wet pen tip glides very fast over the smoothness of the dismantled moleskin notebook, which I chose for the slippery speed of its surface. So she learned to draw water by looking at patterns in the weir. And as a counterforce to the bones and stuffed birds, Sarah carries these water drawings wherever she goes to remind her to look at things liquidly. Last winter on a residency in Honolulu, she took out the drawings again and decided to sketch some waves. Here they are, I hope. The first one, this one I think it is. The first one is formalized, made not in the presence of water, but later on in a perfectionist mood back at the hotel. Sarah said this about it. I think the hotel room reworking collapsed into Baroque patterns because I could no longer hear or smell or taste it or of course see the water. If reading is a kind of internal drawing, then this sketch reminds me how easy it is to read over enthusiastically, turning poems into pattern systems in your head. I prefer this next one, obliterated by rain. You can see the torn page and the ink washed off. And if you hold its thickened paper, you can feel the whole weather of the day, first rate performance by water. And I think it followed by some sketches she made on the back, looking at the outlines of water on the back of the paintings. Sarah is after something more elusive, 
the flourish of a falling wave that is neither incoherent nor overcoherent, a paradox between movement and moment. Here is a series of drawings made while watching waves break over a rock, informed by the moment but not dissolved in it. She says, all of my drawings rely on all of my senses. I touch or hold subjects, especially plants, whenever possible. I hear really important smell and taste, and this is all a kind of seeing. Any one of those sketches would make a good translation of the Greek word hos, surge of change, provisional and mobile, like a breaking wave. So the great singer sang, but Odysseus liquefied. The tears ran out under his eyelids, under his cheeks, hos, as a woman crumples over and mourns her husband. He has fallen in full view of his city and his family. He was trying to delay the traumatic moment for his children. She sees him dying and gasping, drapes herself on his body, screaming a shrill sound, and the men behind are hitting her head and shoulders with their spears and lead her away to slavery, to suffer hard work and sadness. And her face is sucked thin with pitiful grief. So Odysseus was pouring out pitiful tears from his eyelids. What you miss in that translation are the rolling hexameters, which are like the cylinders of a great similarity machine on which everything gets processed into patterns. Because of the hexameter, there is a structural alignment running down through the poem, which matches one weeping to another, just as it matches one rosy-fingered dawn or one winged word or one dark-proud ship to another. There is no stopping it. Over those cylinders goes the shrillness of lament and gets flattened into the shrillness of grasshoppers, winds, seabirds, sirens, and the porphyrion of water comes out, comes out in the same color as the heart. At least that is how it appears when you are reading the Odyssey and the Homeric formulae keep coming at you like a recorded message. I think I have a recorded message. The person you are calling knows you are waiting. Please try later. The person you are calling knows you are waiting. Please try later. The person you are calling knows you are waiting. Please try later. Waiting. Please try again later. The person you called knows you are waiting. Please try again later. The person you called knows you are waiting. Please try again later. And of course, this poem was not in the first place recorded. And in performance, as Pina Bausch said, repetition is not repetition, but something more like the varying resemblances of waves. Homer speaks not in cylinders, not as an answer machine, but in undulations. Hose, as a woman crumples over, hose, so Odysseus poured out tears. And who exactly is this woman? I've seen her in the dark space just behind my eyes and sometimes in front of them. She's in shock, so her knees have given way she keeps crumpling over, she flashes past, screaming enigmatically alive. She has no name, and nor does her city. It might be Troy, but it might just as well be Minneapolis. She is like Odysseus, but in that likeness, she could not be more different. Who is she? If this were a film, we would probably find out. The scene would be presented as a flashback, 
post the image fades to the city of Troy. Here is Odysseus killing a man. He has his knee on the man's neck. We see the man dying and gasping for breath. And here is the widow screaming a shrill sound. The scream fills up the cinema. Hosts, the image fades back to Phaeacia. The scream keeps going. In that film version, the widow has the status of a memory or a ghost. She is a victim of Odysseus, locked to his psychology. Their connection is causal and therefore fixed. In Homer's version, there is only undulation. The wave of weeping moves through both characters, but they keep the status of their difference. Odysseus in one world and the widow in another. As Samuel Johnson might have put it, their connection is living and variable and can no more be ascertained in a dictionary than a grove in the agitation of a storm can be accurately delineated from its picture in the water. So thank you. I am now going to be happy to answer some questions and go back to Roz and I think. Hello. Thank you so much, Alice. That was gripping <laughs> and moving in the fullest sense of the world. We have um, a lot of people asking questions. Um, and I will start, um, well, let's start with, the, with, with one that starts with where you started. So how did you come to the subject of water today for your lecture? Uh, I, I think I seldom leave the subject of water. Uh, I'm very keen on swimming and rivers, uh, but I suppose as well as that, I've always been very interested in that particular simile about the woman weeping. And I've never really known how to answer the question of why at the highest pitch of our emotion uh, we dissolve into water. So that kind of weird connection that when you're swimming, you know you're swimming in the same liquid as grief at its most intense has bothered me for, for a long time, I think. That's really interesting. One of the questions we had was, can you speak to the role of tears as a meeting of grief and water? And I suppose that's what you're describing. It's that moment of encounter with water, which is also an encounter with with grief. Yes, and I I'm there's a a, a Jewish legend uh, connected to the story of Adam and Eve that says that humans were originally given tears as a compensation for death, and I think that's I love that idea. It's a, it's a really bad bargain, you know, to to get these little drops of water in exchange for dying. Um, but if you think about it, uh, it's actually quite a lot as well to be given something physical and actual like tears, which either through distraction or as an anesthetic or simply through the sort of puzzle it presents you with of how the body connects with the mind, they sort of move you through grief, I suppose. And I'm just going to ask a little question of my own because I was so struck with that metaphor that you were giving us and you're working it through. So simile uh, from Homer, I wanted to ask you a bit about time in that and how you perceive that simile working in time. You talked about hallucinatory poetry floating above other poetry. Is this an interruption? Is it happening at the same time? I was thinking particularly about Denise Riley's wonderful um, Time Lived Without Its Flow and this idea that grief suspends time but you are still living in time and whether there's something going on in that. Yeah, Denise talks a lot about the, the stuckness of grief, doesn't she, and how, how it is actually occupies a different time from ordinary everyday time. And I think it's it's a brilliant thing to say, and it's exactly right. And I've always been fascinated by the way 
Homer's similes occupy that time as well. So they always change into the present tense from the main narrative of the poem, which is in a past tense. And I suppose it's perhaps a bit like the idea of the dream time. It's, it's as if there is a continuous present in which at our highest pitch of emotion or understanding, we can, we can sort of look down at ordinary time uh, and get a different perspective on it. Um, still on tears, we have a question that says, why are tears symbolically considered culturally pure when other bodily emissions, saliva and blood, are, have an abject quality, are, are viewed as impure? I'm probably not the right person to answer that, um, but eyes are the windows of the soul, so it might seem that tears are the sort of liquid of the soul, uh, whereas urine, catar, earwax, saliva, uh, come from different windows of the body which are not necessarily connected with the soul. Um, but I, I don't think I really have the right answer, only my own opinion for that. Um, eyes, eyes are very fascinating things, so that's why perhaps tears get a kind of status mm. from emerging through the eyes. We, ha we have two questions that I think are connection, connected. One's an extended way and one's another short way of asking the same thing. So um, one of our listeners gives a quote from Mrs. Dalloway, um, from Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway, where she says, this late age of the world's experience had bred in them all, all men and women, a well of tears, tears and sorrow, courage and endurance, a perfect upright and stoical bearing. What do you make of Wolf's confluence of grief and compassion, nurture and forbearance in this quote? And how do you think we might make our own current collective well of tears productive? And then a more direct way, I suppose, of asking that question is, has the current global situation influenced your work? Um, well, in terms of the first part of the question, um, I suppose I I still do think, uh, I don't want to stop at tears. I think the great thing about, certainly about poetry is that it doesn't get stuck in lament. I think it has this, this kind of rhythmical aspect to it, which moves it through things. Uh, it's got kind of dance and song going on alongside whatever grief it might express. So um, I, I myself wouldn't want to get stuck in that well of tears. I think that, uh, one of the great things about, certainly about poetry, I don't know about the novel really, um, is that it does present two things at the same time. So you can enter grief at the same time as sort of just the joy of, of the music of a poem. Um, and probably with second part of the question, I think that it's quite important to wait and not know too quickly how these extraordinary times are going to have affected people. Um, perhaps one of the things that poetry demands is that you kind of, you don't necessarily listen to the surface of your mind, you wait until the underneath has something to say. Uh, and that can generally take a couple of years, I find. So um, who knows? There are some who say it won't have made any difference at all. I certainly think it's given enough kind of solitude and quietness for people at least to sort of churn things over quite a lot. Um, a question here um, from Dan, rather, although we're still with rhythm. Alice has such a strong sense of rhythm when reading poetry, sometimes unnatural rhythm and all the more revealing for it. Has she allowed her poetry to be set to music? And if so, was she happy? 
Uh, I love working with musicians. I think the best of those collaborations has been when I and the musician kind of take it in turns and listen to each other. I haven't so much enjoyed a kind of formal relationship. I've occasionally written operas and things like that, uh, or words to operas. And I found that a bit less satisfactory because uh, perhaps it's vain of me, but the music is really the serious thing in that collaboration. And it tends, you tend to be told when you start out on it, uh, uh, that only 10% of your words will be heard or something. So I love working with musicians, but in a slightly more jazzy way, I think. Um, okay, many questions coming in. I'm just trying to order them in my own head. Um, Sarah asks, does the surface of the water represent our sense, perceptions and imaginations, which are two uncertainties in our life? So do you think that agitation is about an un a state of uncertainty? Um, I think that what fascinates me about the surface of water is that it isn't just surface. You can see through it and it also looks back at you with reflection. So it is the one surface and, I, and this always, this is why I get interested in it whenever it crops up in Homer. It's the surface that isn't the surface. So whereas Homer always responds to the, kind of, to the actual and the visible and the surface, when he's talking about water, he can't help sort of reading somebody's mind or going into a different kind of world altogether. Um, and I think that although I use the word agitation quite a lot in this lecture, partly because of Samuel Johnson using it. Um, I think that the movement of water doesn't have to be just an uncertainty. It can be a sort of energy. And I think that's really what I love about the movement of water uh, is that it stops you getting stuck. And from the point of view of poetry, that means it kind of, it gives you all the vitality of live performance rather than the printed page. Quite a lot of people are asking about similes and metaphors. I think this is a rather brutal question, uh, and you may have already answered it by selecting the, meta the simile you selected. If you had to pick one simile or metaphor in a poem, which would it be? Um, well, uh, obviously that one that I spoke about has always haunted me. Um, but then I do also love the similes in the Iliad because uh, they just take you to such a very different world. I always think the thing about Homer's similes is that they're not so much similes as dissimiles. They tend to grow far enough that you are then ending up in a very different place. And the one that springs to mind is one that never made it into my version of the Iliad, which is about uh, some men pulling an ox hide. It's a really strange vision of people stretching a piece of skin. So. I'll throw that one in. <laughs> and um, Ariel has a wonderful watery name for us, asked, can translations be writ on water? In other words, where would you say derivative works stand in relation to the originals? Um, that's how she puts that it. That is just such an interesting question because I think that poetry in the 20th century and the 21st century has completely changed its meaning because of translation. There have been so many good translations of good poems and that has changed what we think of as a poem which was always before defined as that which can't be translated. Um, 
So we need translation desperately because we need to sort of fertilize the English language. But I wonder whether translations of poems don't include silence uh, because the silence is something that the poet deliberately places at a particular point in the language. And if you translate it, you're not going to have your silences in the same places. So it does give a very different experience. And I think even writing translations on water wouldn't fill that in really. Um, and Anya asks a very specific question about, she was wondering about Cordelia and how her tears come to represent compassion and forgiveness that in a sense go beyond grieving. So do tears do work beyond grieving? Well, I think tears do work beyond language, beyond thought, which is perhaps why they're valuable. Um, beyond grieving, they certainly take you beyond grieving, but I think with Cordelia, what always strikes me with her is, is her silence and the fact that uh, it's her body that speaks rather than her mouth. We have a, a question as well about, where's it gone? Um, Someone says, what Alice said about water reminds me of the watercolours by W. Tillier and their sense of randomness and beautiful accidents. Is that randomness something that you try to include in your own poetry? I wonder what William Tillier would think of being called random because uh, he does very careful, uh, he sort of guides the water into its blocks and smudges very, very carefully. Uh, and there's a, a huge amount of mastery and artistry in what he does. But yes, he is interested in allowing water to express itself on the paper. And that's very much my way of working too. I like to set things up with a strong enough frame that something other than myself is then free to make its mark. Um, one tries to invite randomness in, and then one has to be careful that uh, perhaps like Sarah's smudged rain smashed drawing, it doesn't go so far that you can't then read it. Um, so I think that the question is always getting a balance between control and lack of control. I just wanted to share with you Di's, uh, a message from Di. She says, I work with grieving children and we use a lot of watery references, puddle jumping in and out of grief, wading through rivers, getting stuck in seas, being knocked over by tsunamis of grief. She, she says maybe water and grief always flow together. And then another question, for, uh, a specific question from Mary says, how has your attitude to water changed or developed over the years that you've been writing about water? Um, I'm not sure that my attitude to water has changed, but I suppose I've chosen different types of water. Um, it was lovely to be able to write the story of a river when I wrote Dart, because that has such a clear beginning, middle and ending. So the poem was already structured for me. Um, I have written quite a lot about rain and that's always a treat because rain is such a beautiful sound. It's already a poem. Uh, the great challenge for me was writing about the sea, which I tried to do in my book, Nobody. And I suppose for me, the sea is, is that which you can't write about. So, so that was like kind of trying to jump into something impossible. Um, unfenced. Unfenced, exactly, yeah. I know uh, a more scientific question, would you be able to speak on water as gas or solid? Do these function as poetic modes? I wish I were more of a scientist um, and I understand 
from my second son that water is very remarkable when it's solid, for example, because it is lighter than its liquid state, if I've got that right. Mm. And I think it behaves strangely, whether it's a gas or a solid or a liquid. Um, and certainly, I suppose for me, what I love is the transitions. I love the way water turns into frost or turns into steam. Uh, but I don't think I'd be qualified to, to write scientifically about that. And this is one, as we're moving sort of further through our questions and close to the end, Joe says um, that you're the most captivating reader she's seen perform live. And how did the experience of reading alone to the lens differ from reading to a room filled with rapt faces, responsive and reflecting back to you? Uh, yes, it's, I'm still going to be going on about live performance because it's a very different experience and the kind of anxiety about the button on the computer that was scroll the script down uh, and then the terrible moment when you Ros had to inform me that I wasn't actually visible <laughs> um, I think that I have seen some quite good performances actually online so I'm sure there is and I love the fact that it can um, go all around the world and that it's very democratic so uh, I certainly think it's a good thing but there is something different about the human body, I suppose, and uh, a human conversation that happens when you hear people sighing with boredom or rustling sweet papers, you know, you've got to pick up speed. Um, so I think it's, for me, very important to have the feeling that my words are landing somewhere. Okay. Um, I think we should probably uh, wrap up. We're almost out of time. Um, one comment from a, an anonymous reader says, uh, listener who says, I wrote a poem whilst listening to your inspiring lecture. Um, I wish I could multitask that way. <laughs> um, so, um, so, thank you very much. So, shall I say goodbye? No, I'm going to have to, I'm going to formally thank you. So you will okay. need to stay with us for a little bit longer. <laughs> okay. Not too much longer. So I want to thank you, Alice, for your lecture this evening. I'm a bit lost for a simile to capture it. Um, thank you very much for agreeing to offer your lecture in this way tonight and for answering audience questions. And we've had people viewing from all over the world, Brazil, Japan, all over the UK, Denmark, Belgium, Croatia, Saudi Arabia, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Pakistan, South Africa, USA. Um, all of us, wherever we are, I'm sure have been moved, probably also agitated by the flow of your anal analysis. And it's reflecting turns from Marilyn Nelson to Homer to Don to Adrian Rich. And we're really grateful to you, Sir Alice. Many thanks to you once again. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ross. And thank you all for listening. And thank you also to all those involved in making tonight possible, including the teams at Torch and the English faculty. And I want to thank all your viewers at home for watching and all your wonderful comments and questions. The audio um, of Alice's inaugural lecture in November 2019 and audio of lectures by the past two incumbents of the post are freely available to the public on the English faculty website and this lecture will join them there soon. Torch continue their live event series next week on Thursday 2nd July at 5pm they'll be joined by Professor Homi K. Baba from Harvard University. Do tune again, in again then if you can. In the meantime, thank you once again for watching and goodbye.